this together. <clears throat> but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, and it died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? In 2005, I went on probably the most epic journey of my life. I'd been in London with the two guys who was on my year out with, and we were getting a visa for a trip to go and work with the church in the States. And so it was before ESTA days, you had to go down to London, you had this appointment. And so we, we got there, plenty of time, we get our visa, no problem, we're going back on the train, we're going to fly back to Aberdeen. for 90 minutes and we end up missing our flight. We get the desk, we plead with them to let us back on. No, no way are you getting on the plane. Well, can we get up tonight? Yeah, you can, but it's a BA flight, it's gonna be 300 pounds per person. So us with no money on a year are like, okay, we'll do something different. So we book mega bus for the next morning and we go and crash at a mate's house in London. Next morning, we get up and we go through rush hour in London uh, we get to Victoria, we jump off the train, um, and we turn, well, I jump off the train, and I turn around to see the other two still on the train as it pulls off from the station, not realizing they're meant to get off. And so they signal to say, well, we'll get off the train and get on the one coming the opposite direction, we'll meet you, meet you at Victoria. So I'm watching my clock, watch, watch, clock, I'm watching the clock on my watch, and um, uh, the bus is getting tight, these guys arrive, we rush up the stairs of Victoria, we get to the bus, just in time to see it pulling out from the station. So we get into the middle, uh, we, we see it come into a set of lights, so we bomb out across this road, get into the central reservation, and chase this bus 
down the middle of London. The lights go red, we're like, yes! We knock on the door, show our tickets, and the driver just goes, no. And so we phone the church, we've missed our bus now, and so they book us on a train later on the day. So it's a freezing cold February morning in January in, in London. We've got no money and, and we're, we're pretty cold. So I was like, hey, listen, let's go to the Tate Modern Gallery because it's free, there's heating, we'll hang out there for a few hours. So we start walking along the embankment, around the Thames, down to this place. When this woman approaches us and she says, are, are you guys over 18? And we'd all just turned 18. Yeah, no problem. Just, how do you feel about being on TV? That'd be pretty cool. So, we sign the wee contract, get taken into the studio, and next thing we know, there's Fern, Phil, and the Agony Ant on this morning. We're like, this is awesome. And so we hang out in the green room all morning, um, and, and, then get, and then get taken onto TV, where we taste this um, plum pizza, I've never had plum pizza before in my life, never had it again since actually. Um, made by celebrity chef James Martin. And we're sitting there in the studio with Fern and Phil, giving our opinion on plum pizza. And we get, we, so random isn't it? We get our autographs, we get their autographs, and then they put us in a chauffeur driven car and take us back to the train before we get back to Aberdeen later that night. That's pretty epic isn't it? <laughs> That's a pretty epic journey. Well, it seems pretty epic until you think of Jonah's story. When Jonah's is a prophet from, for, of God, called to go to Nineveh, runs the opposite direction, is thrown in the sea, is swallowed by a whale who spat out onto the shore, ends up in Nineveh, preaches judgment, 120,000 people believe and are forgiven by God, and he ends up leading the biggest revival in the whole of the Bible. That's epic, isn't it? I mean, that would be cool. Imagine 120,000 people turned up at Alpha tonight. You'd all be like, yes, except for Ian. You'd be like, uh-oh. <laughs> Celtic Park, are you available for later on? And so, as you guys finish up, or as we finish up three weeks in Jonah's story today, I have a question. What do you think God's purpose in this journey was? Feel free to answer if you want. You might think God wanted to save Nineveh. And I'd say, absolutely. You're right. God wanted to save 120,000 people in Nineveh. And he had a plan on how he's going to do it. But that can't be all it is, can it? Because if it was, when Jonah runs the opposite way, he would have been like, see ya, I'm going to grab this other guy who's going to go over to Nineveh. And so God's purpose throughout this journey, I reckon was to transform Jonah. In fact, it's the only book in the Bible where, which tells you about the prophet instead of the prophecy. And so, so God is, is through all of this, his in his unstoppable love, is changing Jonah into someone who would reflect who God is. And do you know what? The unstoppable love that God had for Jonah is the same unstoppable love he has for you today. God is as committed to you this morning as he was to Jonah back then into transforming you into someone who'd reflect 
who God is. And I believe this morning that he wants to do a wee bit of work, or maybe some big work, in our hearts. And so here's one question I want you to think as we start today, as we look at this passage, but also we're going to ask it again at the end, is this. Are you today willing to let God change you so that you'd reflect who he is? Let's pray. Let's ask that God would do some work in our hearts. As we did this this morning, I felt there was three passages that we all had to pray for us. And actually we could pray together. Hopefully, are they going to come up on the screen? They're not. That's okay. Let me try and find them. You know how good I am at looking at the Bible, so give me half an hour. <laughs> Philippians 1, verse 6, says this. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 says this. And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his image which, with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. It says this. Oh. Get stuck in Psalm 119 there for a while. It's pretty big, isn't it? says this, search me God, know my heart, test me and know my anxious thoughts, see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray in light of those verses together. Father, thank you that you are committed to us. That your unstoppable love really is unstoppable. That through the journey of our life, Lord, you are transforming us into people who reflect who you are. Lord, thank you that as we gaze upon you with unveiled faces, that we look straight in Jesus' glorious face, the Holy Spirit... You're transforming us from one degree of glory to another. And so, Lord, this morning we ask that you would do your work in us. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would, you would transform our hearts, change us, make us people who reflect your goodness and beauty. And so, Lord, test us. Know our hearts. Unveil, reveal to us any areas in our heart that you want to change and transform this morning. Lord, lead us into, in the path of life. Lead us into life everlasting. Lead us into life with you. Lord, come and set us free. Breathe new life into our hearts by your spirit, for your glory and for our good.
I'm for Glasgow School. In Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you think that Jonah 4 is just a really strange ending to this book? Trying to a couple of you before, and it really is, isn't it? I mean, I think that Jonah 3 would have been a superb place to land. It would have been just, the plane comes in, just touches down really smoothly. I mean, it could go like this, Jonah 3.10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he threatened. All you need after that is Jonah 3.11, and they all lived happily ever after. I mean, you can imagine it, can't you? The movie, you've kind of got this scene of Nineveh. The sun is setting in the background. There's some nice music comes up gently and the credits begin to roll. And we all walk out the cinema feeling warm and fuzzy thinking, oh, that was lovely. Wouldn't that just be a perfect end to Jonah? I think so. But instead, we get Jonah chapter 4. Life is just more messy than Hollywood, isn't it? And so chapter 4 begins, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Jonah thinks God has got it wrong to forgive the Ninevites. So instead of happily ever after, we've got angrily ever after. Jonah's raging. Instead of a plane coming in and touching down nicely, we've got like a crash landing and the film finishes with burning wreckage and smoke and flames all over the place and we walk out being like, uh oh. <laughs> and so what, what I want us to think about as we dive into this passage is how Jonah's reaction compares to God's reaction. It's a total opposite, isn't it? See, Luke 15 tells us that there is rejoicing before the angels over one sinner who repents. One person comes to repentance and God is calling party time. So how do you think God responds when 120,000 Ninevites repent? Imagine it like this. I don't know if it's how you're wired. I'm sport, which I know a lot of you guys are. I've listened to a couple of the sermons. And the last one, Lewis definitely is. Johnny definitely is. Ian definitely is. So I'm going to stick with that. You, might, you can put politics in if you want. Or had another illustration. Can't think what it is. But you've got, you know where they have cameras in different places when there's something happening? So election night, you've got with all the different party HQs. Imagine it like this. Champions League final night last year. Liverpool v Tottenham. Huge game. Crowds have gathered in Liverpool, crowds have gathered in London to watch it and support their team. And BT Sport put cameras into both of those crowd zones. The first couple of minutes, Liverpool get a penalty and they score and they show the two reactions side by side. What's happening in Liverpool? The fans are going mad. They're screaming their heads off, celebrating like the world's just been made. What's happening in London? Tottenham fans absolutely gutted like their world's just finished. That's how Jonah 4 begins. As Nineveh turns to God, heaven is like Liverpool. Heaven is celebrating like crazy, but Jonah is like a Spurs fan. Gutted like his world has just ended. And so the big reveal of Jonah 4 is despite this whole journey that he has been on, despite everything Jonah has gone through, he still hates the Ninevites. The, the Jonah that we thought we left at the bottom of the sea resurfaces again. And so we kind of sit here 
If you're anything like me anyway, thinking, Jonah, you what an idiot you are. I can't believe you would react like that. I mean, if 120,000 people turned up to Alpha tonight, you guys would never respond like him, would you? But actually, if we put ourselves in his shoes, if you think about the story between Jonah and the Assyrians, and of which Ninevite was a capital city, you might actually end up sympathizing with Jonah. See, the Assyrians were a savage people. Lewis shared a description of what they were like last week. And Jonah grew up in the north part of Israel. Um, his hometown would have been ground zero for their attacks. And so Jonah is a direct victim of the Assyrian violence that you heard about last week. He would have seen with his own eyes people killed by Assyrian hands. He, he would have grown up and seen people missing limbs because of the Assyrians. He would have seen families that have been ripped apart and our kids that are missing parents and parents that are missing kids because of the Assyrians. He grew up poor because of the tax policies that the Assyrians imposed on Israel. Jonah grew up being terrorized by the Assyrians and Nineveh was a capital city. And so when you think of it like that, Pretty easy to kind of sympathize with Jonah, isn't it? It becomes a bit more understandable. How could you forgive them instead of judging them, God? In fact, maybe the same reactions, maybe the same stuff is going on inside of us this morning. I'm guessing that none of us in the Roost room have grown up being terrorized by Assyrian armies. But perhaps our lives have been directly affected by the sin of other people. Maybe you've grown up with parents who have failed you. They're supposed to raise you in a certain way and they were absent. Or they, or they just didn't raise you how they ought. Maybe you've got siblings who, who would bully you and pick on you, make fun of you, make you feel little all the time. Maybe you have friends who have betrayed you and let you down. Maybe you've had a boyfriend or a girlfriend who, who's abused you, who's used you. Maybe you've grown up in a gang or a part of Glasgow which hated other gangs because of how violent they were towards you. Maybe you, you this morning are sitting here and you've got real hate in your heart for a political party because their policies have made your life terrible. You've grown up poor because of them. Maybe you're here this morning and you've got a whole pile of baggage in your heart because you have had a poor experience where church leaders have manipulated you. Maybe this morning we're like Jonah. Carrying scars because how we've been affected by other people's sin. And so if we're honest, if we imagine them turning up at Alpha tonight, it sickens you. You know, imagine you were there tonight and you're praying for people to come on and that person 
walks through the door. You're praying that God would save people. But when they come in, maybe in your heart, you'd be like, God, do not save that person. Because the thought of God forgiving them just seems wrong, very wrong. Feel anger, makes you feel angry. You don't want them to receive God's grace. You want them to receive God's judgment. I've spent enough time with people to know that there are probably lots of those horror stories in this room today. Among us this morning, I, I don't doubt that there is much pain that has been caused because of the sins of other people. And so let me say this gently. Those things are wicked and evil. At no point does God ever say the Assyrians aren't wicked or evil. Yet God, in his unstoppable love, still wants to give them forgiveness. And so Jonah's reaction might be understandable. We might be able to sympathize with it. But God doesn't say it's okay. God, in his unstoppable love, wants to bring Jonah and us to a place where our reaction reflects his reaction. Where we could, we could have joy, we could be pleased if God was to forgive that person. And so maybe God wants to do a bit of work in your heart today. So that your reaction to them would reflect God's reaction to them. Tim Keller says this. God loves you as you are. But he loves you too much to leave you as you are. God has you on a journey that he's committed to completing. In which he will lead you to reflect who he is. And so the rest of chapter 4 is like a two-round wrestling match between God and Jonah, where God is wrestling with the sinner's heart. The bell, round, the bell rings for round 1 when Jonah begins to pray. He prays one of those lecture-type prayers. You know those ones where you're not coming to kind of worship God or to ask God or to seek God, you're coming to tell God what to do? It's like a I told you so prayer. He's got three points to it. First of all, he says, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? Jonah says, I told you. He thinks he knows better than God. He's wiser than God. Secondly, he says, That is what I tried to forestall. I don't know what forestall means. I've never heard that word before until I had the NIV. But that's why I fled. That's why I fled to Tarshish. Is what he's saying. Because I knew that you are gracious and compassionate gods. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in love. You're a god who relents from sending calamity. Jonah's a theologian who knows what God is like, but he's using his theology to justify his behaviour. Saying, God, this is why I was right to run away. You see, Jonah not only thinks he's wiser than God, he thinks he's more righteous than God. And so thirdly, he says, now Lord, take away my life. For it's better for me to die 
than to live. He knows what's going to happen. The Assyrians are going to come back and make his life a misery. He may as well save money on the journey home and just die on the spot where he is. Because Jonah knows the future better than God. And so Jesus says, look, it's out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so Jonah's prayer acts like a, a scan into Jonah's heart. And what do we see? We find someone who believes that he would make a better God than God. The Jonah who says with his mouth in chapter 2, salvation belongs to the Lord, really believes in his heart in Jonah 4, salvation belongs to me. It's mine to give and take away. And so God sees all of this and he asks him, is it right for you to be angry? I love God's response. He doesn't feel threatened by Jonah. He doesn't say, like, I'm not big enough to handle what you're throwing at me. And so he doesn't attack him. He just really gently, really kindly comes to Jonah and asks him a question to make him reflect. Look, do you think your response is right? Do you think how you're seeing this is the right perspective? What a great question for us to ask ourselves regularly. In every situation, to ask ourselves, is how I responded to that situation the way that God would have? If we're to put our two reactions next to each other, are they the same? Or is he in Liverpool and I'm in Tottenham? Or vice versa? Jonah knows the answer is no. He knows that God is celebrating and that he is raging. So what does he do? He does the same thing we all do when we lose an argument. He runs away in a huff. Jonah in chapter 4 is back on the run, just like Jonah in chapter 1. And his strategy is genius, absolutely genius. Do you remember which way Jonah ran in chapter 1? He goes from, where did he start out? Where does he start out? Why am I forgetting this? Starts out, he gets on the ship, he starts in Joppa, he's heading to Tarshish. He is going, it doesn't matter where he's going, he is going from east to west. Did it work? No. His plan didn't work. So what does he do in chapter 2? He goes from west to east. I'm going to nail it. He moves to the east of the city. I love it. He thinks, if God got me when I went that way, maybe he won't get me when I go the other way. Maybe able to outrun the love of God. And so he refuses to go home. In fact, he builds himself a new home, probably a booth made out of some palm leaves. And he decides he is going to wait it out until God wipes out the Ninevites. It's ridiculous, isn't it? The prophet who didn't want to, leave, to go to Nineveh now doesn't want to leave Nineveh. See, Jonah is wrestling with God. There's a battle of wills going on here, like a parent with a child. And Jonah, as a child, thinks, if I behave badly enough for long enough, he will give in to my demands and I'll get what I want. He reckons he can outweigh God. He's determined to make God reflect his reaction instead of him reflect God's reaction. 
And so Jonah sits there for days until the leaves have withered in the heat and the booth has stopped giving him faith. God comes and wrestles with Jonah and Jonah stubbornly chooses to sit in bitterness rather than humble himself before God. I wonder if you've ever been in that place. You're utterly convinced. God, you've got this wrong. You pray that, that lecture type prayer, the told you so prayer. I mean, God calls you to forgive someone who sinned against you and you say, no, I'm right to feel this way and this is why I'm right. Maybe God challenges you on a belief that you hold. And you say, no, I'm right, God's word is wrong, I won't listen. God convicts you of a, a pattern in behaviour in your life. And you think, no, I'll keep doing that, God. Who are you to tell me what's right or wrong? God leads you in a certain direction, but it's not the plan you thought. You don't get the uni you want, you don't get a house you thought you were going to get, you, you fail an exam, you lose your job, a relationship that you thought was going to go on forever breaks down. And you just have this anger and this hard, work, hard heart to God. And you say, God, you're just unfair. I won't follow you. You need to follow my plan. And so we end up like Jonah. Maybe our lips would never say this, but deep down, we believe we'd make a better God than God. And so we tell him why we're right and he's wrong. We tell him what he should do. We want a God who reflects us rather than for us to reflect God. See, the reality is, if you meet a perfect God who is transforming you to reflect Him, because we're all imperfect, there are going to be times when God challenges us. When He asks us, is it right for you to respond like that? And we've got to decide. Are we going to be the people who will run into God's love and humility or run from God's love and pride? The early church leader, a guy called Augustine, said this. If you believe what you like about God and reject what you don't, it's not God you believe, but yourself. And so to receive God's love takes humility. It means that we'll die to ourselves and live to God every day. It means instead of us reshaping God into what we're like, we reshape ourselves, or God reshapes us, into what He's like. So where are you at today? Are you humble and running to God? Are you open to Him changing you and transforming you? Or are you stubbornly running away from God like Jonah?
And that ends the bell for round one. If I'm honest, I find um, bitter people the hardest people to love. Like, I, I'm very much like optimistic, glass half full type of guy. And I just find that the opposite just sucks the life out of me. It's, it just exhausts me. And so with, with bitter, bitter people, it seems to me that there's always something wrong and it's always someone else's fault. With, with bitter people, even when you win, you lose. Even uh, where there's, where there's a behind every silver lining, there's a cloud. And so the room is always too hot or too cold because of something else. The music is too loud or, or too quiet. I just find bitter people to be really draining. And so if I was God here, I would just leave Jonah to it. I'd be like, I'm done with you. I've taken you through all of this. You still aren't responding. That's it. But praise God, he's not like me. Our bitterness does not stop him from loving us. And so the God who went from east to west now comes from west to east to find Jonah. The God who, who went after Jonah in his disobedience, chapter 1, still comes after Jonah in his bitterness in chapter 4. And he comes armed with this bizarre object lesson. Provides a plant to grow up and to give Jonah shade because his little booth he built for himself has withered within a couple of days. And Jonah loves the plant. The plant gives him great joy. It's just, yes, shade. We know how that feels as Scots when we go abroad, right? So yes, some shade. We can cool down again, get back to our normal temperature. God then provides a worm to eat the plant. Takes the shade away. I love just how God is orchestrating these events to reveal something in Jonah. That's what he does. What does Jonah do? You've got to believe that he would just hate that worm. This worm has come and destroyed this plant. He's now stuck out in the heat again. It's you, you guys whose, whose other half loves to sunbathe and you really don't. You're like, I'm going to be sitting out in the sun again. Great. And then finally, God then provides a scorching east wind so, so that the sun beats down on Jonah's head. And what does Jonah do? He wants to die because of the circumstances he finds himself in. Jonah wanted to die, he wanted to live, he wanted to die. He's an emotional roller coaster, he's all over the place. And what is God doing in all of this? What is he orchestrating through these events? He, he, all he's doing is changing Jonah's perspective. I was in Costa this week. I don't know if you, you have this in Glasgow. This is like a Jupiter Highlander thing. Um, but next to, the, next to the till, they had this cup and they had a lemon in it. Did they have this in Glasgow? The wee sign that says, if you can balance 20p on this lemon, you get a free coffee. If the 20p falls in, it goes to charity. Some of you are nodding, some of you know what I mean. Or maybe you're just a Jupiter like me. Um, anyway, it looked easy. I was like in the queue. I love a deal. 
and was like, yes, free coffee, no problem. Take my 20p out of my wallet, put it on the lemon. What happens? Flips over straight away. It looked simple, but it was difficult. So if you ever attempt to do it, don't do it. It just makes your coffee 20p more expensive. It's not a deal at all. It's a trick. It's like the opposite of a yellow sticker. And so God says to Jonah, it's like what he does. Jonah thinks, hey, being God is easy. This is what you should have done. This is how you should have done it. I could do a better job than you. And so God's like, okay, it's fine. You, you want a shot? You have a shot. You have a seat. You take a turn in my seat. And so what God does is, he lets Jonah experience what it feels like for something you love to be destroyed. So he does through the plant. And so after he's let Jonah see it from that perspective, he asked him the same question he asked him before. Is it right for you to be angry about this plant? God wants Jonah to reflect, is how I responded to this circumstance a godly reaction? Does my reaction to the plant match up with what God says? And this time, Jonah feels he's right. And what do we do when we feel we're right? We'll stay and argue longer. And so he doesn't run away. He says, yeah, it is. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. So what do you guys think? Maybe we should take a poll. How many of you think that Jonah's reaction to the plant was right? Hands up. How many of you think it was wrong? Hands up. There's, there's some hands up. God goes with the none of you that thought he was right. God doesn't say anywhere, Jonah, your reaction to the plant was wrong. In fact, he seems to say it's right. He says, look, Jonah, you've been concerned about this plant. You could add in, and you're right to be. You didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And so shouldn't I have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell the right from the left, and also many animals? See what God's saying? He's saying, look, Jonah, just as you love this plant, so do I love Nineveh. Just as, it took, as you took joy in this plant, I take joy in the people of Nineveh. Actually, you love that plant, I love those people more. So you didn't even create the plant. You didn't care for them, it just came and went in a night. But in Nineveh, there's 120,000 people who I made in my image, whose souls last for eternity. And he says, look Jonah, just as you hated that worm for destroying the plant, I hate sin. In fact, I hate sin that destroys people more than you hate that little worm. 
So God says, look, if you hate that plant and wish it didn't exist and want to destroy that worm, then I want to destroy Satan, who's not just a worm, he's a serpent who seeks to destroy and kill my people. And he says, look, Jonah, just as you were angry enough to die for the plant, so am I angry enough to die for the Ninevites. Actually, my willingness to die is stronger than yours. Because you're saying it, but you don't really want to die. Whereas God doesn't just say he's going to die for his people. He actually does die for his people. And so Jonah finishes by, by pointing us forward 800 years and showing us the person of Jesus, doesn't he? You see, in Jesus, you see the unstoppable love of God in full. You see the ultimate expression of God's unstoppable love. In Jesus, God's unstoppable love is seen in a person. And what did he do? Jesus left heaven and came to earth. Because God loves us as his creations. Where Jonah was called to go to Nineveh, but ran away, Jesus is sent to earth, and he comes, obediently. Jesus came into this world, why? Because he hates the sin which destroys us, that separates us from God and leads us to death. And so Jesus came into this world to destroy sin. Like Jonah wanted to destroy the worm. Jesus came into this world because God is angry enough to die for you. He sees how sin is, is destroying you and it makes him so angry He's willing to die. And so Jesus came into this world so that we, like Nineveh, might receive God's grace instead of God's judgment. See, so often in this story we think of ourselves as Jonah, don't we? Actually, we're the Ninevites. The guys who disturb, deserve God's judgment but are given God's grace. It's Jonah as well, right? Jesus in his unstoppable love has come into this world to pursue people that have run away from him. And so whether you run west to east or east to west, whether you go to the heights or to the low parts of the sea, like David, you'll be saying, where can I flee from your presence? Jesus has come in his unstoppable love to seek you out no matter where you are. At the cross, Jesus died, taking the judgment for our sin upon ourselves so that we can receive forgiveness and grace and love. And on the third day, Jesus rose because he had conquered over sin. He had trampled death into the ground. He had destroyed the serpent. So that we can have life instead of death. Forgiveness and freedom. 
And Sojourner 4 finishes at the end of a fight with a picture of Jesus standing in victory because God's love is unstoppable and nothing can conquer it. And that's it. It just finishes. Jonah 4. His journey finishes abruptly. What happened? I don't know. We're just left with this big question mark. How did Jonah respond to God's love? Did he let God change him so that he'd reflect what God's like? We don't know. And that's the point. Because it's as if God, when he's wrestling with Jonah, throws a right hook and we're watching it behind Jonah and Jonah disappears from sight and that hook is coming towards us. We're just left there with the question that God asked Jonah coming into our hearts. And so Jonah 4 leaves you with a huge question mark of how are you going to respond to God's unstoppable love? Are you going to let God's grace come and heal the scars on your heart? Are you going to let him carry the baggage that you have? Are you, are you going to humble yourself under him? Or are you going to proudly try and stand over him? Will you receive God's unstoppable love towards you in Christ? Or will you keep on running from it? And so we finish where we began. Are you willing to let God change you today? So that you'd reflect who he is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your unstoppable love. Father, whether we have, have run to the east or to the west, to the heights or to the depth, there you are seeking out for us. Thank you that you are a shepherd who will leave the 99 to go after the one. Thank you that you've come after us. You've given your son for us. that you are committed to changing us and transforming us and bringing us freedom and life. 